Please fasten your seatbelts. The skies are rough and our two pilots have no idea where they're going. So kick back, relax, and enjoy your flight on no blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. Going to a new place in general is never going to be as full if you stay at like the Sheraton of whatever town you're in, whether that's Zurich or Pensacola. You are always going to have a, a much more fulfilling experience. Sleeping on that person's, the promoter who did the show, like she has a one bedroom apartment with like five cats and all of you are allergic to cats, but you all go sleep on that like threadbare carpet with a little blanket pulled over you in a corner. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another week of No Blackout Dates. My name's Tim. And I'm Evan. And today we've got Dan Aid with us talking all things about touring as a professional musician. Dan gets into all kinds of crazy stuff, mostly about how not glamorous tour life is, contrary to what you may have seen in movies like Detroit Rock City. So we're going to get into that here in just a few minutes. But first, our famous hot takes segment. Evan, I want to talk to you about duty freeze. Do you ever shop at the duty free are duty-free necessary? I always wonder why some airports make such a big deal about it. Uh, could you explain to me what a duty-free is? I'm like the worst travel writer ever. I don't, I don't know. What a, I don't do credit card points. I don't have an airline loyalty program. I don't have TSA pre-check. I have no idea what duty-free even is. So effectively, a duty-free shop uh, is in an international airport where it's effectively not in the country that you're in. So it's in inter- international territory. So there's no tax. So what you're buying, you're saving whatever the percentage on taxes, which some people like are so, you know, get so up in arms about taxes that they probably love that stuff. I don't really care about spending a little bit more on sales tax. I'm not going to spend $500 on all my bottles of liquor for the next year while I'm at the airport to save $10 in taxes. But don't you pay more because it's airport prices? Well, supposedly no. Like the whole point, of duty. The whole reason duty freeze exists is because it's supposed to be the cheapest way to get the things that you're getting there. Although I don't think that that's actually true. And if it is, it's barely. So you're by what the by the small percentage that you're saving in cost, you're adding to the inconvenience of your travels by having to lug all of this stuff with you onto the plane. And you have to declare it all when you get to the, your home destination, right? Yeah, sure. Whereas normally I wouldn't have to declare anything. Usually you have to declare all this stuff. You're probably paying about the same as you would take away tax, but I feel like they do upcharge you because you're in the airport. So you're really not saving any money. And I always wonder what people are shopping at duty free. I'm like, who's doing their shopping when they're on like four hours of sleep in the airport before a long journey home? Like who's doing that? Same people that I wonder when the flight attendants go through the cabin with their little, uh, cart full of watches and and uh like other weird amenities for purchase like who's buying who's buying a watch mid-flight so same my view is the same on duty free i've always wondered that and it's funny like i remember being on a bus in vietnam crossing into cambodia and there was a duty free shop we're literally in the middle of nowhere like there was nothing around we were on a bus going through the border into Cambodia and there's like this little duty-free shop in like the place where they stamp your passports. It's weird. The bus goes by two days later, the guarantee that shop just isn't there anymore. Right, right. It's It was it was weird. I've never understood the point of duty-freeze, uh, but it sounds like we're on the same page there. Okay, so my, my second question, is the bag charge 
justified. And I'm asking you to 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 forgo the fact that you never check a bag. I want to present I want to present a case to you. People get all up in arms about bag charges, myself included, uh, sometimes. However, when looking at it objectively, I feel that it's probably almost a good thing to have a bag charge because shouldn't you get a discount for not having a checked bag? Like, shouldn't you have to pay less if you're bringing less stuff? I think it's definitely justified on budget airlines because you pay less for a ticket and they really get you on the baggage charge for check bags. So I think for budget, I understand it because that's kind of how you can get away with getting a cheap ticket on like Ryanair. How much is it to check a bag on like a, American Airlines or United? Uh, on United, it's 30. I pay 30 when I bring my snowboard gear with me. I almost feel like they should pay you because the whole point is they have limited cabin space. They're always begging people to like, oh, if anyone wants to volunteer to check a bag who hasn't already, like, you know, we'll give you these benefits and, you know, we don't have enough room. So please, please volunteer. They should pay us, you know? Either either build it in build I don't I guess I don't want them to build it into the ticket price because I don't check a bag so I want to pay for something I'm not doing but it seems like you're an airplane it's your job to be able to accommodate our luggage so if we're gonna you know entrust our luggage to you and risk that you might lose it which happens not pre- infrequently and you don't get your money back you don't get anything you just get a sorry sorry bud like here's your luggage a week late. You know, they should pay us. Not a ton, but they should pay like 30, you know, 30 bucks a bag. They should pay us $30 to check a bag. They should be so fortunate to carry it. I'm serious. I'm serious. The more I think about it, the better this sounds. The guy on my, on the, uh, our, the Saudi Arabia trip, Brian, one of the filmmakers had a bunch of bags with like important filmmaking equipment in there and they lost one of his bags. Guys flying business class. They still lose his bag. So you pay all that money for business class and they still lose your bag. He didn't. He had to wear the same pants and shirt for the first four days, and did he get a, any kind of reimbursement? Did he get paid for? No, of course not. And his bag took. I he told me afterwards when he went home to Denver, it took uh, two days to get back, back to him in Denver. So they lost it twice. Wow. Yeah, that's inexcusable. Yeah. Why we're paying for this service? They should pay us. Okay. Well, maybe you've just changed my mind, Evan. My my argument is, is <laughs> the weaker argument here. I think. All right. Well, on my side of things, my first question for you is kind of a weird question. I don't really know uh, what you're going to say. I don't even know what my thoughts are on it. Do you think that war museums glorify war inappropriately? I don't think that they inherently glorify war inappropriately. I think that, you know, if not that I'm some expert Mm -hmm. to speak on this, but if, 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 they're done correctly and are meant as a tribute more than a, a learning about war, you know, uh, type of a thing. I think that that's probably good. And, and like, I think it can be a good way, particularly to raise uh, money for veterans causes uh, and other charitable giving. Like, I think that is a justifiable cause for a war museum. Sure. If there's, if it's not a free museum, I guess, but, and, and I think it depends. Every museum's totally different. And I think a lot of them are learning-based more so than tribute-based. I mean, you have memorials to, like, fallen soldiers. That's not that's not really what I'm talking about. I mean, more like a like I went – this is inspired by uh, my trip to Slovenia, and we went to a 
the site of a World War One battle that happened uh, on the Slovenian border of Italy. And it was, I don't actually forget who was even fighting. I think it was like Slovenia versus versus Italy at the time. And we walked along the trenches and learned about the like the details of the battle. And like the we, we heard the tour guide give us this dramatic account of the heroism of the Slovenian army and against improbable odds. And it was very standard of, of war historical experiences. But my friend who I was with said to me, do you ever think that war museums are kind of glorify war in a way they shouldn't? And I never thought about it before. And I still don't know if I agree, but it was taking a pretty small, inconsequential battle that you don't learn about in the textbooks or in high school. And it made it sound like the people who were fighting on the good side, which was the Slovenian side, because we were in Slovenia, were these heroes. And then the other side is like the bad guys. And it kind of did glorify the Slovenian army, which you would expect from a Slovenian tour guide. But is that appropriate? Talking about war in a in a storybook kind of these are the heroes and these are the villains sense. It's a fine line between education and propaganda, I think. Yeah, I agree, actually, especially because these museums are almost always going to be built by one side or the other. It's not like that museum was a cooperation between the Axis and the Allied powers. You know, it's it's presenting one side. Uh, so I think that's something to note in this conversation, actually. Like, I, I still feel that, you know, if it is raising funds for veterans' causes or, or for war prevention mechanisms, I, I think that that can be a good thing to go. But sure. I, I do think that both as the curator and as the visitor – this should be approached from a very neutral stance. You know, yes. I, I, yeah. I, I, I will qualify that by saying, unless you're dealing with something like Hitler, because there's no neutral <laughs> stance to be had there. Right. And I don't, I don't have no reason to doubt that any of the information they were giving me was inaccurate or any way skewed. But yeah, it's not, and I don't know the answer. I think it's just something interesting to think about, not just with war museums, but all museums. You know, you're at a museum of Danish history that just shows you, you know, armor and weapons artifacts. This is a, a museum in Copenhagen showing you Danish history and artifacts. There obviously is somewhat of an agenda. It's not a neutral. No museum is really neutral. So something to consider. Anyway, on a completely different subject, slightly lighter subject, would you ever sign up for an adult daycare? I had this idea not too long ago. There's a day, as you know, I'm sure now, Tim, there's daycare for kids. You take your kid there while you go to work. They give your kid a place to go play. You give them, they give them snacks to give other people to play with and meet. Um, I don't know what else happens in daycare. They play little games. Wouldn't it be great if there was an adult daycare, almost like a hangover cure? So you basically, you pay like 100, 200 bucks a day on like a Sunday morning when you're all hungover and just miserable and don't want to do anything for yourself. You pay, you go to this this classroom setting. There's people that take care of you. They give you some juice boxes and Pedialyte and you can meet a bunch of other hungover people and you can all just kind of hang out, talk about your night. Uh, there's a nap time. They give you like beds to sleep in, nap time. There's a recess where you can kind of just let blow off steam or relax or watch Netflix and bid beanbag chairs 
and that's it's just it's a good way to not have to think about anything or do anything for yourself or cook for yourself or go shopping or do any responsibilities someone else takes care of all of it for you adult daycare so i think that this article or excuse me this idea would be much more successful if this adult daycare were in your home and it was more like an adult nanny who then comes to your house and does these things like prepares your meals and cleans and uh, makes sure that you are well taken care of during that day that you're paying her for. I, I don't want to go to a place to be around a bunch of other people uh, when I'm in that state. No. Uh, even when all those other people are in the exact same mental state as you? No. Like I kind of feel like that's funny. Like You're out at the bar with a bunch of people one night, and then you're all, not your friends, not your friends, doesn't matter, just people in your town. And then you're all on one level. And then you go out, you're hungover the next day, you go to this daycare, all the same people are there, but they're all just like, oh, dude, drank way too much last night. So happy to be at daycare today. And then you can kind of commiserate with them yeah, because you share a common uh, trauma almost. I see what you're saying, not even to deal with people. That would probably be a premium service. It's like a house visit. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't. I personally think that I'm too cheap to ever pay for something like that. But uh, I'm sure there are people that who would. Well, do you know those buses that, uh, those vans that go around Vegas that cure hangovers, and you go in, it's like 15 minutes. They they inject you with like hydrating fluids. It's like that, but like a more, a less medicinal and more kind of holistic experience, I guess. All right, adult daycare. Tim's not down, but I'm down. So if anyone wants to start one, you know where to find me. Well, that's it for me. Uh, I guess we can get right into the interview with Dan. We'll see you guys on the other side. Okay, Dan Aid is a touring musician and actor currently based in L.A., formerly of Denver, Colorado, uh, has been in bands such as Authority Zero and Wire Dogs. Dan, we're happy to talk about music with you today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tim. It's good to be here. Yeah, man. I want to jump right in and talk a little bit about tour life. I think the entire world has perceptions of what life on tour is like as as a guy in a rock band. First off, talk a little bit about in and out, one night in a town, on to the next town, on to the next town, on to the next town. Do you ever feel like you get to know these cities at all? Do you have a connection with any of these places that you're going? Uh, I think it like like year one when you, because I'd done a little bit of touring, like when I was in high school, like my band, like we went out for a week and that was really cool. And like uh, Wire Dogs, like we went out to the West Coast and back, but it, it wasn't until I started doing stuff with um. Uh, the Bunny Gang and Authority Zero that we started doing these like 10 day tours, two week tours, seven week tours. And I think that is a huge education in um, what it means to travel like that. And uh, yeah, I think you get a sense of places like, uh, but it takes a while. Like there's a repetition to it and it becomes more about like, okay, I know these five people who we always see when we go to this place and we always like get dinner or like they're hanging out afterwards. Um, and you start to know certain venues that you play and then it's like, okay, I'm going to go here. And then eventually, you know, you're in Virginia beach and you're like, okay, I'm always going to have like that hour to like walk down to the water and put my toes in and then like run back up. 
and like eat too much seafood and like feel sick before I got to go on stage. Like that's that night. Um, Traveling as a touring musician kind of feels like being on a road trip with a bunch of your friends while also having kind of a job to do on the way. Do you, when you make a band, when you create a band or decide to join one, is it almost like choosing friends that you would want to go on a road trip with as much as it is about people that you vibe with musically? Because you're not just in a band in a, in a garage making songs. Like you're going to be traveling on the road with these people for weeks or months on end. You have to be sure you're going to get along with them. So does that come into consideration? You've been in a few bands. Does that come into consideration when you decide I want to create this band with these people or join this band with these people I can see myself traveling with them and having a fun time with them uh, yes absolutely I think well, the relationships you have internally are the most important thing to any amount of success you're going to have success not just meaning like oh we are a successful band but like you have to have successful relationships to lay the groundwork for anything to be sustainable, I think. Um, and a lot of that, I think, in bands comes down to, like, what are what do people actually want out of this experience of being in a band? Because um, I think everyone, when you're coming up, there's an excitement about, like, of course I would want to tour. Of course I would want to do, like, that piece of it. But I think there's a big reality of what, touring is that you can't know until you've done it and really it is for some people and it's not for some people but i think everyone thinks they want it and and that includes me that includes me getting to a point after five years of doing it where i was like oh man like this is so wonderful in so many ways over here it definitely gives me you know a b c d e f but I've now realized after five years that it will never provide me, you know, X, Y, Z. And I really am curious about the X, Y, Z part of my life. So in order to make this column over here, even something that's available to me, I might have to like put this on hold. Um, Cause it's, it, it has to be your first priority. It has to be what you're like, you have to be willing to drop anything to go and do it. Um, and you have to have people who are also willing to do that. And uh, like I was in bands with guys with, you know, wives and kids and things like that. And a lot of times that means all of you have to have relationships with those those partners and those children. And to make sure that like, it's not just keeping those relationships that in my case was like four people in a band healthy. It's keeping the larger family healthy. It's keeping like the relationships with management and agencies help like healthy. Yeah. You're taking on a much bigger family than you could ever imagine. Have you ever turned down a band, a prospective band member or decided not to join a band because you didn't think, even though you might've uh, respected the music or their talent thought that you wouldn't vibe with them on a personal level or they'd be a terrible travel companion. Yes. Like in putting together my own bands, you definitely have people come in and audition where like um, a lot of times for me, it was drummers. Like you're going through drummers pretty regularly <laughs> as sometimes happens in this industry or uh, lead guitar players. And, uh, and someone comes in and you spend an hour or two together, like running through songs and then they leave. But usually the core group of the band always knows like you all, like if the person really isn't a good match, you all kind of look at each other afterwards and you're like, 
great, cool. Uh, who are we bringing in next? Like, um, it's usually very apparent. I want to go back to what you were saying about, you know, this being a relationship between more than just the people in the bands. Uh, you know, my experience playing in punk bands was more like what you described at the beginning, where we were only got to a level where we'd go on the road for a week, and that was like a huge deal to us, and we talked about it for the next 10 years, right? So I don't have nearly the level of experience that you do in this, but in, in my experience, it, it's more it's like a marriage, right? Like you're married to these people, and then as you, you start out as a, as a band where you're drinking beer at practice, and you're writing songs, and everything's great, and you have delusions of grandeur, and then you start playing gigs, and you make $17, there's a level of frustration. If you're able to see through that, you can get to the next level. But then you start getting a little older, right? And then people have a wife. People have uh, uh, a child. They might have a job. It's It becomes a balancing act. And that, to me, is like the, the collapse point, not just for individual musicians, but for like 90% of decent bands. Like they can't seem to just hold everything together to a point where they can become true professionals. Yeah. So my take on that is that I think the ecosystem of like the music industry is in, is in my experience of it, incredibly toxic, does not allow mm. for that to happen. The business is set up to uh, take advantage of artists, uh, is purposefully built to make you feel so fortunate that you have any opportunity to be anywhere you are at any point without really allowing you uh, the support that you would need to do that financially, just like uh, uh, sometimes that means like water and food are not available to you. I think it's a, I think it's a really messy industry. And I think one of the things that draws people to it is that messiness. Um, but at a point where you are trying to um, do other things in your life, and that like support other healthy relationships or like maybe plan for a financial future for yourself and try to like live within that messiness, that balance is really complicated. And I think that's why, like when I was on tour, you see a lot of people coping in different ways to make that happen. I mean, it was, it was, it was very eye opening to meet a lot of my heroes in this industry who are now in like their fifties and to see that almost all of those people are like either addicts or in a program and in recovery um, that many times while there were moments of uh, like you, you got these hints of, of like who these people were at their core and sort of the brilliance of what you were drawn to in them. There's also like this deep, like darkness and sadness a lot inside of these people. And you just saw that like, for a lot of folks that it was kind of a drain and that in some cases, like people felt really trapped. Like they started doing this thing in their, in the, when they were a teenager or in their twenties and it took off and now they can still sort of make a life doing it, but it doesn't make them happy necessarily or like really fill them up. Right. Right. And, and it's not like the, for most bands, of course, you know, there are like, the bands that make a ton of money and they and they stay in five star hotels and, and it's very a different experience from what ninety nine percent of them are. But most of the time, yeah. people are freaking sleeping in the van or on a bus or mm -hmm. in a shitty motel and at the beginning on somebody's couch. Like it's far from the glamorous lifestyle that it's that you see in like Detroit Rock City or something like that. You know, 
Yeah, no, I have slept on, you know, and what's interesting about traveling like that too, is I think there is a large benefit to traveling like that. And it teaches you that going to a new place in general is never going to be as full if you stay at like the Sheraton of whatever town you're in, whether that's Zurich or Pensacola, like, uh, you are always going to have a, a, a much more fulfilling experience sleeping on that person's like the promoter who did the show. Like she has a one bedroom apartment with like five cats and all of you are allergic to cats, but you all go sleep on that like threadbare carpet with a little blanket pulled over you in a corner. And it makes you kind of like, it's that same feeling of like a high school party when you crashed, like everyone was like trying to like find a place to sleep at the end of the night. But now you're like people in your thirties and forties and you really are trying to sleep. Like, um, or sleeping in squats in Germany, like in rooms with like no windows and the night air coming in. And there's literally like a raised platform. Someone is built out of wood, out of wood with like a ply wood slat on the top. And you're all just like leaning against your backpacks, huddled like shoulder to shoulder for warmth. And like you wake up with 10 spider bites or like you go into the bathroom in the morning to take a shit and like you hear scurrying and the, a rat this big pops its head out of a PVC pipe in the wall and you're sitting on a toilet and like, and it's, and it's weird, but it's also like, uh, you will never have that experience at the Hilton. Um, and there's something about that that is like wonderful in a way that you get to see the world in a way that isn't curated for you. That isn't meant to make you comfortable. And you have to then go, you have to like come through those experiences as that family, as that team. We're going to take a short break from the interview for a word from our partners at Matador Network. Are you a travel writer, filmmaker, or an influencer who loves to travel the world for free? Check out creators.matadornetwork.com and explore one of our many press trips. Sign up for free. That's creators.matadornetwork.com. Happy travels. And now back to the interview. So when you're on the road and you're going to different towns, different cities or different countries, do you find that you're, you have a different reaction from crowds based on culture? And I know the kind of music you're playing, you know, will vary in terms of reception, but I mean, I don't know how much international uh, touring you've done, but has there been any standout destination where you recall people being much less uh, receptive to certain kinds of music or you being more nervous to go and play there or just kind of not as good of a, a scene in general? Uh, I would say the place that I think at the moment of places that I have played sort of has the, the scene that is, I think, least excited by punk rock these days is the United States. Hmm. And I think there's a good reason for it. I think, I think punk rock uh, as it's as it is like as you learn about it and as it's sold to you kind of when you're learning about it is that it's it's this revolution that you are taking part in and that can mean any that can that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people but at some level it is supposed to be that you are engaging in sort of this social cultural in some cases for some people that political revolution that like starts with music and these people and you're coming together to build this thing and really that happened in the United States in like the seventies. And then in certain cases in like the, the, it gets adapted into like the hardcore scene of the eighties out West. 
Um, but there's not a lot of people trying to do punk rock in a really revolutionary way in the U.S. And it's partially because it's culturally kind of already had its moment in so many ways. So when I look at the most punk rock things happening in the United States right now, it is not things that sound like, like Rancid or Black Flag or Green Day. It is usually like hip hop. Because those people have something to say right now for this moment in time, culturally and socially, that is revolutionary. And you see it reflected in the culture of people coming behind it. And there is energy there and you see a surge. Now, internationally, where that is also happening, uh, where that is happening for punk rock is Japan. And when you play in Japan, this is the first generation, like playing with our friends over in Japan uh, in bands like Dizzy Sunfist and, and Hey Smith, like this is the first generation of Japanese folks, as it's been explained to me, that is like creating this music, creating record labels, like, like breaking out of a, a much more um, socially conservative structure and like getting tattoos and like publicly like talking about shit and like being like, we smoke weed, even though it's illegal. Like, remember like when that was such a big thing in the US, like you had people like, like Snoop Dogg, like, you know, you know, just like people, it felt dangerous. Like, and now if an artist is like, I smoke weed, people would be like, who fucking cares? Everyone smokes weed. Um, but there right now, and when you go to the shows, it feels like that. The whole room is on fucking fire. Everyone wants to be there. Everyone is like aching to move with you, aching to be a part of this thing together, to have this experience, to like sweat this shit out and get into it with each other in like the most beautiful way right like even me like not being that old like i feel like i grew up in like punk rock was popular in you know like 90s 2000s and but now when there's new when punk rock bands are still from back then are still putting out songs or new ones are coming up i still feel like they're trying to recapture something that is almost past that doesn't mean i don't still like it but that's super interesting about japan that they haven't had that moment yet so it's almost like the 80s and 90s again for them yeah and i don't think that that means that there isn't the opportunity for like shit has to evolve and we have to allow ourselves like i know for me one of the things that i have thought so much about over the last few years is like within punk rock as it currently exists in like the culture of it in the united states right now like i didn't see how me like i didn't see how i could continue to maybe say the things i wanted to or be creative in the ways that i wanted to if I didn't change something about how I was doing it, I was going to get stuck just trying to repeat something and hang on to this little slice of like the punk rock pie. And that, and like that, I think I realized like, wasn't enough for me. Like I want to have bigger conversations than that. I don't want to rehash the same shit for the, for the next 20, 30, 40 years. I don't want to do that. And so if I want to have different conversations, I'm going to have to change some shit about how I'm operating. In terms of virtual concerts that kind of rose uh, in popularity out of necessity during COVID, do you think there is any kind of future for that? Or do you think that trend will 
die once COVID also dies? I think there probably is a future in it. Like I've talked to a couple of friends in the last five years who have um, joined companies whose whole purpose is about creating uh, experiences for people. Um, in one case in particular, I know that like uh, like virtual experiences are becoming more uh, a thing that people are making a lot of money off of. Um, so I know in one case, it was a company that was mostly developing um, pornography experiences for people in that realm. But as part of that, they were also doing concert series. So I think there is a future in it. Like, I don't think it's a future. It's not a future that I'm invested in. Like, like if I look back over the last like 17 years of my time in like music, the relationships that I built that I care about, that I think care about me, were all built through things that didn't happen through Instagram or Facebook or YouTube. It was like being at a show or like taking the time to like create a flyer and go hand it to somebody and be like, this is me. This is what we do. Like, who are you? And now let like, I think that's, that's how I want to interact with people anyway in the world. Like I finally deleted my Facebook account after years of like toying with it. Like, it's just not a space that has ever, like, ever fucking mattered. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, at least, at least in 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 my experience of it, like, what, like I got the same amount of people to come to the show when I had zero friends on Facebook as I did when I had five thousand friends on Facebook. Like that didn't fucking matter. And I hope that we, like, as a musical culture, as a promoting culture, of music, we can get away from like this false idea that like you gotta like invite your Facebook friends to shit. Right. No, I agree. It's it. I actually remember during the heart of my music days, I blocked every single friend from inviting me to events on Facebook because it got so out of control that I would get on there in the morning and I'd have like 17 invites to like a show on a Tuesday night. And it's like, I'm sorry. I just, I can't deal with this anymore. You know, you can't, you can't do that. Yeah. It, it's like, we're hurting ourselves with this idea of like, like it's easy to sort of assault our friends all of a sudden. And it also, you just can't replace like being at a show is being at a show. Just like going to a movie is going to a movie and going to a party is going to a party. Like sitting on a computer, you're never going to get the magic of a, of a, of a band, like putting their art out there and you being there to witness it. Like that is not going to happen on a computer. I remember during COVID, I would get all these invites for virtual nightclubs. Yeah. I would just delete them immediately thinking it was ridiculous. And then I got, I didn't know what to pitch at Matador one week for a story. So I was like, you know what? I'll pitch this virtual nightclub thing. Like what's it like to go to a virtual nightclub? They'll probably say no, uh, but whatever I need a pitch. And our, our then editor at the time, Laura was like, yeah, you should do this. You should go, go to this virtual nightclub and write about it. I was like, fuck, I have to go to this virtual nightclub. now." And it was Halloween. It was Halloween. Uh, one of the like Halloween weekend one night, during COVID, I had nothing else going on, so I went to this virtual nightclub, and it was the most bizarre thing I've ever experienced in my entire life. It was like, there was a lot of people. It was like a Zoom screen, basically different Zoom chat rooms, and you could just join whichever, they all had different themes, and you could join whichever one you wanted. They all had a different DJ playing different kind of music, and it was just people sitting in their living room, 
some dressed up in costumes, some not, like head banging to music. And I was too embarrassed to even put my camera on. And I just kind of sat there and like took it all in. But and I understand why people do it. It's it was COVID. There's no clubs open. There's no you couldn't actually choose to go to a real party or a real nightclub. So I I understand it. But I still get invites to that same company that still does virtual nightclubs. And I'm thinking like who I'm curious who's doing it now. Like are they must still have it. This is a year and a half later. There must still be an audience for it. Um, but yeah, I, I, that was one of the most bizarre experiences of my life. Just sitting there looking at all, it was like dozens and dozens of people just sitting there in like clown costumes in their living room who had clearly gotten dressed up for the occasion. And we're probably like pounding drinks and stuff. And then at the end of the night, you're just sitting in your living room by yourself. drunk. It made me say the whole experience made me really sad. Not because, for, not for those people, because you know they they were getting had something to get excited about. Good for them, but just that that was like what we had been reduced to. That and remembering what a real nightlife experience was like, and yet here I was sitting here doing this, and yet there are other people who got like really actually psyched about doing this. It just made me sad. Yeah, well, I think we like we all really crave connection. And I, and like, I think we are all real infinitely curious about the ways in which we can connect. And because we have that drive for connection, people are looking at how they can make money off of like offering connection in so many different ways. That's why people that would have never otherwise done a live, uh, a virtual concert or a virtual nightclub yeah. two years ago would have been like, yeah, sure. Sign me up. Like I need, I've been inside in quarantine for nine months. I need some kind of, you know, simulation experience that reminds me of when I used to go out. Well, it's, it's a lot easier also to throw, uh, you know, you don't have to have security staff throw people out. You just close their zoom window. The costs are a lot, are a lot less. <laughs> That's true. Um, thank you so much for joining us before we head out. Where can people find you? Oh man, not on Facebook, man. Yeah, where's uh, your, where's your music? That's a good way to close this one. Where can we go jam to your tunes? Yeah, I mean, all my music these days is on Bandcamp for free, basically. Like, you can go listen to. Uh, you might have to pay for the Wire Dog stuff, like, but that's on Bandcamp. Uh, Dan Aid, that's all on there. The Dan Aid stuff is also on like Spotify and like um, I have like the 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 distribution online distribution thing that sends the songs everywhere so everywhere you would listen to that stuff is out there um acting wise uh i'm not sure i think it might be coming out around christmas but uh i'm in the new alexander payne film the holdovers um starring paul giamatti and that'll be out around christmas super cool man well thank you so much for joining us yeah thanks dan Okay, News of the Day is up next after a great talk with Dan. Our first story uh, is something about TSA, which has been a frequent topic in this section lately. But TSA has now, according to an article from Matador's Olivia Harden, added a section on their website where you can literally type in what you want to bring on a plane into a search engine box, and it will tell you whether or not it's okay. And Eben, like, this is great, but it leaves me wondering why this didn't happen a decade ago. I'm already having a great time just figuring out what things to type into this search field and seeing if it allows me to take it on planes. Uh, you could, this is like you could spend your whole day doing this. 
You really could. And not only that, they've actually made it finally easier to determine the sizes of things that are allowed or what kind of container it needs to go in. It all seems like the TSA, uh, instead of spending all of their time on their hilarious Instagram page, has finally hired you know, somebody to do SEO and website optimization to make their site a little bit more useful. Yeah. Uh, in case you were wondering, nunchucks is a hard no. Throwing stars... Also a hard no, okay. Uh, brass knuckles. Also a hard no. <laughs> yes, in checked baggage. Okay, all right. What about what about moonshine? Moonshine. Uh, moonshine. No results found for moonshine. Uh, I wow. guess that means it's okay. That's okay. That's okay. If you bring your moonshine and they say you can't bring it, just be like, look, your website didn't tell me I couldn't bring it. Yeah, so moonshine, no results. Vodka, no results. Whiskey, no results. What if I just say alcohol? Yes, carry-on bags, it's okay. So you don't be, don't get too specific. Moonshine, I guess, is okay. It falls under the umbrella of alcohol, which is permitted. Just no nunchucks, throwing stars, or brass knuckles. Okay. Perfect. All right. Now uh, that we've answered the burning questions already, let's move on to our second article, which is the first airport cannabis dispensary in the world just opened in canada uh canadians flying i think just domestically will be able to go to a dispensary before or after takeoff and i guess this makes sense but because i think because weed is legal in canada but if you're flying to somewhere that it's not legal i guess it's only domestic so i guess that's okay it seems like it could get kind of hairy, though, in the U.S. If that were to ever, uh, if one were to ever open in the U.S., because every state has their own rules on uh, weed legalization. So I feel like having a, ca- a cannabis dispensary in Colorado, but then you're flying to Texas, it's just entrapment. You know, it's like, oh, here, buy some ca- buy some weed, fly to Texas, get arrested immediately upon landing. You know. Right, yeah, you, it would have to be only like on the exit side of the airport, you know, so it would have to be outside of security uh, and made very known that it could only be bought uh, on your way into town, which honestly in Denver is not a bad idea. But uh, yeah, it's interesting that that's happening in Canada. I wonder if it's going to take off and then become a staple in all major Canadian airports. I'm surprised that Vancouver's airport is not the first one. Yeah, so the airport, the Prince George Airport Authority has partnered with Copilot, a dispensary that's pioneering cannabis for travel, and uh, gotten permission from airport regulators, and that will allow domestic air travelers to have up to 30 grams of flour or the equivalent in other products. Wow, that's a lot. That's like over an ounce. Yeah, so that's going to be this summer. It's going to be a good summer in Canada. Cool. All right. Well, get on up to Canada if you want to buy some pot at the airport. Finally, a reason to go to Canada. (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening to No Black Updates. Make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us, of course, a five-star review. And if for some reason you want to follow what we're up to, I'm Flow underscore on Instagram, and he's TimWinger1. Also, a big shout-out and thanks to our producer, Alex Halkey, executive producer, Katie Hetrick, our email marketing guru, Kelsey Wilking, the Manador social crew, and everyone else on the team who puts up with us on a daily basis. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you.